Almighty God, we come to you with uh, humility and eagerness as we approach your word. We know that not a single word is wasted, um, a throwaway detail, but all of it is for edification, for our nourishment, and for us to know you and grow in relationship with you. So we pray that you would teach us and illumine us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) So we're looking at Genesis chapter 1. And um, there are, as I said last time, last class, there are three proposals for reading Genesis 1. There's three, there's a six-day literal, you know, 24-hour view. There's the day-age view. And then there's what is called the literary view. Let me emphasize again that um, this is something that Christians can disagree on. Um, There's a diversity of opinions and uh, I'm going to propose and support the literary view, but if you find yourself disagreeing with me, that is perfectly okay. As I've said before, um, if it ends up so that um, I die and I go to be with the Lord Jesus and he says to me, Michael, it's the sixth day view, I will say, yes, Lord, right? That makes sense. So um, I have Genesis 1 printed for you. We're going to refer to it on an, on occasion, but unfortunately, because of time, we don't have. We're not going to be able to read it all the way through. Um, but we will refer to it um, uh, periodically. So let me go through the six-day view, and let me give you the arguments for the six-day view. And there are basically three arguments. Number one, this is the majority view throughout church history, and uh, we should respect church history, right? And therefore. Um, we respect our elders. We respect those who have gone before us. And therefore, um, I think what that means is that church history isn't always correct, but it provides a greater burden of proof if we're going to dissent. Second argument is the six-day view follows the plain reading of the text. It's the most natural, um, common-sense reading, particularly if you look at, for example, a verse like verse 5. In verse 5, it says, there was evening and there was morning. So the evening and morning refrain is repeated after each of the six days. So it's, what, is the, what is that language talking about? I think the most natural way to read it is that it's saying it's a natural day. There's evening, right? Evening is sort of sunset, and then morning is when the sun rises, right? And so it's not using the, the word day figuratively or symbolically. I think this is perhaps one of the biggest problems with the day-age view, right? Because the day-age view says that the word day there, the, the Hebrew word yom, actually means age, right, or epoch. But think about that, right? Replace the word day with age. There was evening and there was morning, the first age. That makes no sense at all. Why would you say it like that? So it's the most natural reading. Number three, the fourth commandment is grounded in this creation account, reading it in a straightforward way. So, for example, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, this is the Ten Commandments, right? And the fourth commandment says this, For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so uh, the argument here is that there's a parallel between our work week, our ordinary seven-day work week, um, and then God's work week. And so this seven-day structure is then based on God's creative act. God God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. The same applies for humanity. And so the Sabbath is grounded in this historical event, right? This sort of straightforward reading. So that's the arguments for the six-day view. (coughs) Let me uh, outline the problems with the six-day view. And let me just give you two problems. The first problem is what is called the day one, day four problem. Um, Because if you consider day one and day four, um, God creates light. He says, let there be light on the first day. But then he creates the sun, and in fact, he creates all of the heavenly bodies, all the stars and so forth, on the fourth day. So let's, let's just briefly read it. Verse, starting in verse 3, this is day 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the, ni- and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, skip down to verse 14. We're talking about day 4. And God said, let there be lights and the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights uh, in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made 
the two great lights, the greater light, that's the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God also made the stars. And God set them in expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So, here's the problem. How can there be light on earth without the sun? In fact, it specifically says on the fourth day that the very purpose of the sun is to give light, right? So, both the six-day view and the day-age view respond in this way. They say, well, on the first day, God created a non-solar source of light. There was light, but without the sun. So some people speculate the light was a cosmic radiation in the universe before the stars were formed. Here's the big problem with that. How do you explain the cycle of day and night? How do you explain this cosmic light that is shining, that blinks on and off every 24 hours? and then suddenly disappears on the fourth day with the creation of the sun. It's a very tortured explanation, I think. And it makes this refrain that we see, evening then morning, all the more strange. Because what's happening in days one through three is a simulation of a natural day. There is no sun, and yet we experience the cycles of a sun, right? There's evening and morning, the light fading in and out until finally it, it happens for real on day four. So I think ancient peoples well understood that the day was based on the sun. This is uh, particularly true if you read verses 17 through 18. So that suggests that as ancient peoples were reading this text, they understood inherently, intuitively, that this uh, story of creation is non-sequential. It's not a strictly chronological telling of the story of creation because they would have, of course, experienced and known the day one, day four problem but rather, they knew something else is guiding the story. There's a deeper theology at play. The second problem is the seventh day. If you look at the seventh day, notice there's an absence of the refrain, evening and morning. So let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Um, thus, and um, this, is very, this is a very important paragraph, very important verses. And as you'll see when I get to the literary view, this is, in my opinion, the whole point of the story. Okay, But, let, but let's just read it for now. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So it's very odd. Why is this closing? Why in this closing paragraph is the refrain, there was evening and there was morning, why is that left out? Did the writer forget? Or did he intentionally leave it out? And if he's intentionally leaving it out, why? What is he telling us? The um, Most theologians would tell you that the writer is telling us the most natural way to understand it is that the seventh day never ends. It's an everlasting day. This is, in fact, alluded to, for example, in John chapter 5. Jesus is sparring with and debating with the Pharisees who accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, right? He's healing on the Sabbath. And this is what happens, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, right? The day of rest, the seventh day. But Jesus answered them, listen, my father is working until now, and I am working. So that's his justification. So Jesus' argument here assumes an eternal Sabbath. God's seventh day of rest never ended. And it continues on and on to this day. And yet, Jesus says, and yet, God is working, continually upholding the universe. If God is working on his Sabbath day of rest, then um, Jesus is saying, you cannot accuse me of breaking the Sabbath. So then here's the larger question. What does an eternal Sabbath mean? Well, two, two points here. Number one, it shows us that the seventh day is non-literal. So you have at least one break in the pattern, right? If the argument is that the six days are literal, 24-hour days, then the seventh day is non-literal. That suggests that perhaps the other six days are also non-literal, right? There's at least one non-literal element in the story. Secondly, the fact that there's a break in the pattern is signaling that this is the climactic point in the story. This is the climax of the story. 
And uh, as I'll explain later on, I believe the literary view has the best, most um, satisfying explanation for why there's a break in the pattern. Okay. Um, any questions on the six-day view? It's a very venerable, respected view, as I told you. At the end of history, Jesus says to me, Michael, it was the six-day view all along. I will say, yes, Lord. Then I'll say, what about the day one, day four problem, Lord? <laughs> all right, so let's go to the day-age view. So the day-age view, as I said uh, in the previous class, um, is a very popular view among lay people, lay believers, but it's actually not very respected and not very um, well-held among um, theologians. Um, and so let me just quickly go through the problems. Number one, the exegesis. Exegesis, by the way, just simply means interpretation. The exegesis is driven by accommodation to science. Oh, let me just explain the day-age view. So the day-age view is basically that the word day equals age, right? And therefore, it's a sequential chronological telling of the story, but each day represents billions and billions of years. And so that sort of accommodates uh, modern science. So the problem here is that the interpretation is driven by accommodation to science. The interpretation doesn't naturally come out from the text. I believe that both the six-day view and the literary view are trying to read the text faithfully, right? But I think that the day-age view is trying to shoehorn in the passage and trying to fit it into what we know from modern science. It doesn't really work well, I think. Secondly, if the day if day means age, why the refrain, evening and morning, right? That makes no sense at all. Number three, you still have the problem of the day one, day four problem, right? There's a non-solar source of light that blinks on and off every 24 hours. I would like to hear a scientist explain that. Number four, what about the seventh day? Because the day-age view is mostly driven by science, relatively thin on theology, it doesn't really have a good explanation for why the seventh day goes on forever and ever. Um, as, and as I'll explain to you, um, the literary view, I think, has the best explanation. So let me go to the literary view. And uh, let me tell you, the literary view is now pretty much um, the large majority consensus among conservative evangelical scholars. It's been a huge shift in the last 20 years or so. Um, and I think that what that's showing us is that we've really, like, as people have grappled with the literary view, um, the arguments for it, I think, are really convincing in terms of the text. Um, and I'm not going to give you all of the arguments. I'm just going to give you a very brief presentation of the arguments and emphasize what I consider to be the most important one. But um, I think that uh, 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 there's a lot of uh, credibility to it. Okay, So I'm not telling you a zany sort of weird view right now. I'm telling you basically what is the majority view right now in evangelical seminaries and theologians. That doesn't mean it's correct, by the way, but it, it does give it credence. All right, so what is the literary view? Here's the literary view, okay? The seven-day week is not a chronological historical account. It's not like a journalistic, you know, the cameras are rolling and we're just like videotaping what's happening in each day of creation. But the seven-day week is a literary framework. They're sort of like pegs. They're sort of like uh, picture frames where God is telling the story. And the point of the story is theological, not explaining material origins. It's not telling us how the universe came about. It's telling us what is, the, what is creation for? What is the meaning of creation? Does that make sense? Um, as I told you before, the example I gave is, think about a stage on a play, right? Um, the, the, the important, uh, Genesis 1 is telling us how the story began, right? So if it's Lion King, it's telling us about Mufasa and Simba and Uncle Scar, evil Uncle Scar, trying to usurp the kingdom. That's the story. It's, and, and, and scientists are interested in, okay, how did they make that stage, right? What are the curtains made out of, right? How did they, you know, procure costumes and so forth? Those are interesting questions, but not questions that the Bible is interested in answering, if that makes sense. All right, so there are four arguments for the literary view, and the fourth argument is the most important, in my opinion, and that's the crux. So let me just get through it. Number one, argument of genre. Genre is how do you read a text, right? Um, is it a historical text? Is it a poetical text? It sort of guides the way you read. So the genre of Genesis 1 is it's a song with poetic elements. 
You read poetry differently than you read historical narratives. And in fact, you see this all the time throughout the Bible. The Bible has two accounts of the exact same event. Uh, it has a historical account, and then it has a song of the historical account, right? So let me g- give you some examples. Exodus chapter 14 and 15. Exodus 14 is a straightforward historical account of the Exodus, um, crossing the Red Sea. And then Exodus chapter 15 is a song about the exact same event, but the details are all um, non-chronological, right? Because in a song, you don't you don't tell a straightforward story, right? Um, another example, Judges chapter 4 and 5. Judges chapter 4 is the historical account of Deborah and Barak fighting the Canaanites. Uh, Judges chapter 5 is Deborah's song about the same event, right? Um, the song, by the way, is a true telling of the story. It's real. It's based on real history. But it's not interested in getting the details in chronological order because it's a song, right? So Genesis 1 is the song, and Genesis 2 is the straightforward historical account, right? So let me go on. Genesis 1 is written in a highly stylized poetic Hebrew. And just like in a song, you have repetition. So you have all kinds of repetition. For example, it says, God said, and it was so. God saw that it was good. There was evening and morning the first day. So you have all of these repetitional refrains, which gives you a big signal, this is a song, okay? Um, Second argument, the strangeness of verse 2. So let's look at verse 2, and let me just back up a little bit, and let's read verse 1 first, okay? In verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, let me just take this time to explain the word heavens. Um, the word heavens has three meanings, um, three possible meanings. It can mean um, God's dwelling place. Right? The, you know, the super, his supernatural realm, um, his heavenly court. Um, number two, uh, it can mean the starry host, basically the universe. So uh, number one could be, uh, you could think of it as heaven. Starry host, basically um, the universe. And then number three, heavens describes the sky. All right? So a lot of times, uh, I know people get confused. Like, what is it exactly talking about? You have to understand it in the context. It means one of those three things. I think here it means all three. God created all of these three things, right? So there are two ways to read verse one. The the literal six-day view looks at verse 1 and says, well, it's a summary title. It's sort of like the the chapter heading. And then it's it's giving you what actually was done in the creative account. The literary view says this is the actual account of creation. Does that make sense? Um, And notice, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a lot of detail. (laughs) It just tells you that God did it. It doesn't give you the specifics. And then the verses 2 and on is a poetical, literary telling of a story that isn't chronological or, his, or necessarily um, historical in the way we would understand it. So let's go to verse 2. Verse 2 is really odd if you accept the literal six-day view. Listen to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Notice, we are still not in day one. Day one begins in verse three. And yet it speaks of the earth, the deep waters, and the darkness already existing. Okay? So when did God create the earth? Did God create the earth here at this moment or on day three? When did God create the oceans? Here or on the second day? When did God create darkness? Because we know darkness is itself a thing. Did he create it on the first day, right, when he separated the night from the uh, light from the darkness, or did he create, or was it already existing? So I think it's better to see verse one as the creative act, and then all subsequent verses from two and on is God ordering and structuring creation, and it sets it up in two stages. So verse two sets up the scene. The scene is chaos and disorder. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like God is at the potter's wheel. And there's a big lump of clay. And it's totally disorganized. And then days one through six, God is ordering and structuring and separating and dividing and creating purpose. He's shaping the clay. Does that make sense? 
And therefore, verse uh, Genesis uh, from chapter one, verse two, FF by the way just means and following. Two and on is not a chronological account of creation, but it's a poetic telling of creation. The main point is theological. So let me go to the third argument. We can see a clear literary structure in the days. Okay, so. Um, if the literary view is true, we would expect to see, well, what's the reason for the way the, the, the days are structured? And you would see that on days one through three, God creates the kingdoms. And then on days four to six, God creates the kings to rule the kingdoms, right? So on day one, he, he separates day and night. Day two, he separates the heavens and the seas. On day four, he creates the land. On day four, on the, uh, say day three. On day four, right, he creates the sun, moon, and stars to rule the day and the night. On day five, he creates the birds to, to rule the skies and the sea creatures to rule the ocean. And then on day six, he creates the animals to rule the land. And then finally, the last creative act, he creates man to rule over all of creation, right? And I want you to notice, and we'll get to day seven in a moment, and I want you to notice the language of dominion and rule. That's the whole point of the literary structure. So, for example, look at verse 16. Okay? It's very odd if this, is a, if this is sort of just a straightforward telling of the story, especially if, it's a day, if this is the day-age view. L- listen to verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, okay? notice the word rule, and the lesser night to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. So it's giving us the function and purpose of these heavenly objects is to rule. Other translations have it to have dominion, to govern. These are kingly functions, right? You wouldn't, like if a scientist, if you ask a scientist, what are the stars doing? They wouldn't say to rule the night, right? This is a sort of a literary, poetic, theological description. So why use this description? Is it just poetic license? No, there's a deeper theological meaning, and I'll get to that in a moment. Let's go on. Look at verse 22. It's talking about the uh, sea creatures and the, uh, the birds. Verse 22, God commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the, in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So these tri- trio of language, this trio of words, right? Fruitful, Multiply, fill. Okay? Very important words. This is dominion language. This is ruling language. And you see that when you consider the parallel mandate given to man. So skip down to verse 26. I'm going to read you the whole section. Unfortunately, there's no faster, more efficient way to do it. But just think about this language of fulfill, fruitful, multiply, fill in terms of uh, what it means. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and he, and let them have dominion. Okay, that's the purpose, commission given to humanity, there to have dominion. Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, why? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, listen, this is what God says to humanity as dominion rulers be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth so humanity is to exert its dominion by being fruitful multiplying and filling the earth and so in likewise the birds and the sea creatures are to be fruitful multiply and fill as an act of kingly dominion over their domains, right? Over their over their respective kingdoms. So the theme of Genesis 1 is dominion and rule. God creates the kingdoms on days 1 through 3. God fills those kingdoms with kings on days 4 through 6. And the crowning act of creation is man. Man rules over all of the rulers. Why? Because he is the king of all creation. Why is man given this exalted status? Because uniquely he is made in the image of God. Right? He is God, he is uh, sons and daughters of God. 
And humanity rules over all of creation as God's vice regents, right? They're imitating God. And therefore, what is the whole point of the literary structure of Genesis 1? It's telling us God is king, right? God is king over all things, and he sets up his images, his image bearers, to rule as his vice regents over creation. And then we'll get to day 7 where God is enthroned. We'll get to that next. But let me pause here for a moment, ask open it up for any questions about the odd problem of verse 2, the literary structure. There will be more opportunities for questions, but any clarifications at this point? All right. Excellent. I apologize for going so fast, but there's so much so much to say. All right. Actually, I'm actually doing really well. I can slow down. All right. All right. Fourth argument. This is it. If you've forgotten everything up to this point, if you just remember this, this, the, the, this is, in my opinion, the crux of the matter. All right. So the climax of creation is day seven. What is the purpose of day seven? It says that God rested. Why did God rest? Is it that God was winded, right? After six days of creative acts, God has to take a seat. Whew, right? Wipe his brow. No. So here's the answer. This is what rest is. And please listen, because this is it. Rest is enjoyment and satisfaction in the work completed. It is not that you need a break from the hardness of the work. It is enjoyment. It is satisfaction. Because after a great project is done, you want to commemorate the moment. Have you ever experienced that? You complete an awesome project at work, or you do some sort of amazing paper at school or something, you want to take satisfaction. You want to enjoy it. Um, my kids love to play Legos, and when they create this massive Lego creation, what do they do? They immediately run and show us, Mommy, Daddy, look at this, and then we have to display it, and then we all have to sit around and look at it, <laughs> and marvel at it, and praise it, and notice little details, and ask about it. Right, why does that happen? Why isn't it that, I mean, so what's going on, right? Is it that my children build the Lego piece and they're like, whew, I need a break. Let's rest. <laughs> no, right? You sit and you enjoy. If you've written a really great paper, what do you do with that paper after you've written it? You read it, right? You're enjoying it. You're savoring it, right? That's what rest means. Rest is a state of enjoyment and reward and satisfaction in a job well done. It is not just the absence of work. It is the presence of appreciation and satisfaction. And I want you to know it's a kingly act. So imagine this uh, imagery. Um, A king goes out, and in the ancient world, kings were city builders. So a king builds this great city. And after he builds his great city, what does he do? He sits upon his throne. And he enjoys it, right? He takes satisfaction in it. And so that's what's going on on day seven. God sits enthroned. He is enjoying the work that he has done. Let me go on furthermore. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So he doesn't just take this opportunity to rest, to enjoy, to take satisfaction in what he has done, But then what he does is he elevates it, he exalts it, he blesses it, and and declares it holy. He makes it this heightened state of of bliss and glorification. Why does he do that? The fact that that the seventh day does not end is extremely significant. That is, in my opinion, the whole, the, the main thrust and the main point of the story. Right? He... He takes the seventh day, this day of of enjoyment and satisfaction. He exalts it by blessing it and calling it holy. And then he he makes it so that it never ends, right? Um, So if we could graphically draw it, right? Here's the, the, the creation week, days one through six. And then what happens is, He creates the seventh day, and it never ends, and he rests. Okay? 
What does this tell us? The fact that the seventh day never ends tells us, number one, history is not an endless loop. Because if there was an end to the seventh day, then we just go back to day one, right? History repeat, repeating over and over again. But it's telling us that there's a, there's a narrative arc. History is progressing towards a goal, towards an end. And that end is God enthroned in heaven. And so day seven, I want, and so here's my thesis, okay? And I'm going to try to expand and defend it. Day seven, where God rests, is a symbol, it's a picture of heaven. Okay? Day seven is a, is a symbol, it's pointing to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth that you can read about in, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It's the future age to come. This glorified world of bliss and enjoyment and that was the goal of God's creative act all along, was to lead to this moment, right? The age to come. Which is eternal. Which will never end, right? You see that um, supported in Hebrews chapter 4. That rest means glorified enjoyment with God forever and ever. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4 is an extremely difficult chapter to read because the writer of Hebrews um, is jumping around all over the place. So let me jump around with him. It's helpful to read verse 4 first. So let me read the second verse that I have printed for you. So the writer of Hebrews says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh... I love how his uh, his reference there is somewhere. <laughs> I don't have time for the reference. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What is he talking about? He's referring back to the creation week, right? To Genesis chapter 1. He's talking about the day of rest. Now, what does he say in verse 3? For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's referring back to um, an earlier account during the wilderness, right, where the people rebelled, and God says, they will never enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, right? So what is he saying? He's saying rest is not just some sort of like abstract concept. Rest is a destination. Rest is a place. Rest is somewhere where you can go. You can be barred from it, or you could enter it, right? You could join God. You can be with him. And so the seventh day when God rests is this profound theological symbol of heaven, of the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. And in that way, it's parallel to the tree of life. You guys remember the tree of life? <laughs> there were two trees in the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the tree of, that's the, that's the testing tree, whether they will obey or not. There was a second tree, tree of life. That's the reward for obedience. By the way, the tree of life reappears. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, right? It's there in the, in the New Jerusalem. It's the reward for fulfillment and obedience. So humanity is going to enter into the seventh day, the day of rest, if it obeys, but we know, of course, they fail to obey, but now in Christ, we could enter it, right? So then here's the question. So here's the whole crux, and here's the point, my thesis. Why does God create the world in six days? Why tell the story like this, using this literary creation week framework? Here's my answer. It is not because God is giving us chronological information about material origins. It's not that God happened to create in six days and roll the, roll the camera, let's take a picture of each day as it's happening. God created the universe, and then now he's telling the story of his creation. He's telling it in the framework of, six, of a seven-day week, six days of creative, of creative activity, so that it leads to the seventh day. And the purpose of the whole account is not how, but why, so that God rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath day is the promise of a resurrected world to come. That's what. That's the whole point. From the from the from Genesis one, He's already telling us that this age, this life, is temporary, is provisional. It'll end, and then one day 
There'll be this resurrected world of glory and bliss and enjoyment and permanent righteousness and holiness. Here's one supportive detail. This is why the Sabbath day changes in the New Testament to Sunday. The Sabbath, right? The Hebrew Sabbath is Saturday. That's the Sabbath. But Christians observe the Sabbath on Sunday. Why? The Lord's Day. Because what happened on Sunday? Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. What is his resurrection? The Bible continually says it's the first fruits. The first fruits of what? I mean, it's a it's an agricultural metaphor, right? Jesus is the first one to enter this new reality, this eternal reality of this resurrected, glorified world. And therefore, to commemorate that moment, we change the Sabbath day to Sunday, to the first day of the week, right? So here's my conclusion. I know I'm being a little bit repetitive, but let me just say it. The creation week is not about chronology. The story is told in the format of a week to tell us about this future world to come. And the Sabbath is a symbol of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not telling us that God happened to rest on the seventh day, so we should rest too on the seventh day. So that's, that's my story. Any, any questions? Uh, yes? No, the sixth day is done. So we're in the seventh day. God is in his seventh day, but we have not yet entered it. Although, when we believe in Christ, we have entered it sort of in part. So we're between ages. So like our, our physically is on the edge, like the end of six, but not on the seventh, but our spirituality depending on whether or not we're committed and being attentive? Yeah. So that's, 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 <laughs> uh, that is a way to put it, right? Which is, which is that, um, so the, the, the days one through six represents this present age. Right? And the seventh day is talking about the age to come, this future reality. But the future reality is already present inside of our hearts. It's, it's a living, breathing reality inside the church. We're experiencing the benefits of it already. Right? So we already experience communion with God, fellowship with him. We're already experiencing uh, sanctification in all of these, all of these realities, but it's not yet come to its fulfillment, right? So, like another metaphor that the Bible gives us is birth pains. We're right now, we're, creation is like a pregnant woman, and she's in labor, and so she's screaming and crying because she's suffering. That's what this age is. But one day the baby will come. What's the baby? The baby is the seventh day. It's coming. Right? Jesus himself described himself as uh, in labor pains, right? His resurrection achieved it, accomplished it. So you could think of, you could think of history as like this, right? Here's history, and on the resur- here's the cross, and on the resurrection, Jesus ushered in, he brought forth the new heavens and the new earth already, but in spiritual form. But the physical reality of new heavens and the new earth, when everything is renewed, is still awaiting us when he returns. And then history will end, right? And then the earth will be renewed, and we will live with Jesus. We will live with Jesus, be in, the f- in presence with God forever and ever. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> so that's what create the creation week is telling us. The it's telling us about the word is eschatology. It's telling us about how the world will end. Genesis one immediately before even the fall. Think about that before Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, it was already telling us about the world to come. Does that make sense? Harry, you had a question? Yeah, uh, so where today it just talks about, you know, the allowance of science and, you know, for evolutionary process to kind of work through. Yeah. Um, the, the literary just basically doesn't it allows for it, but it doesn't Yeah, so a good way to think of it is the six-day view contradicts modern science. Right? Either six-day view is correct or modern science is correct. The day-age view says, we're partners. We're saying the same thing. The literary view says, you're doing a different thing. I'm doing a different thing. Right? We don't necessarily contradict. We don't necessarily agree. You just do your thing. I'll do my thing. So, so six-day, they, they, they just, the way they explain kind of the process is that they say, oh, God, it work that way? Or? 
Right. So how do we explain the antiquity of the universe? Um, hardcore literal six-day people say that basically the world was simulated to make it look like it was old. So that when you dig in and you, you see these uh, uh, layers and so forth, all of that was a simulation. And then the fact that we received light from you know, uh, billions of years ago, light was already in transit, or you know, all these exotic explanations, which I think is kind of tortured. Then you have people, um, hardcore creationists like Ken Ham, where you have uh, the Noah's Ark exhibit in Tennessee or something. They have dinosaurs in the Ark, right? So you have all kinds of really tortured attempts to, to match and accommodate. I think the best way to do it is don't accommodate. Do, we're doing separate things. And, they're bo- and so I talked about this the last time. There are two books. God's book in nature and God's book in scripture. They're both about God. They're both from God. They're both true. They're just telling different stories. Yes? Possible, yes, that's true. So that's a, a lot of people ask that. Isn't it possible to have them both simultaneous? I think um, the, 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 the problem with that, so it is possible. The problem with that is this insistence that the six-day view has on chronology and sequence. It's, it's why, why does that have to be the case? It could be the case, but why does it have to be the case? So I think the literary view basically is sort of agnostic on the timing. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. But I will say this, the literary, if you accept the literary view, then it opens you up to look at science and say, oh, the science eliminates the six-day view. Okay. Wait, I'm sorry, say that again? Yeah. Yeah, I would say Revelation is also not to be read chronologically. It's to be read the- uh, thematically, theologically. But that's a whole other longer discussion. Yeah. Any other questions before we go on to the last point? Oh, I was hoping we'd sort of run out before we get to the last point. All right. <laughs> last point. Did Adam and Eve really exist? Right. So, modern genetics tells us that humanity did not descend from a single pair. Um, the best uh, estimate from modern science is that minimum several 10,000 somewhere closer to 100,000 was the original human population from which all of the genetic diversity that we see um, comes from. So then people say, well, then maybe we can read Adam and Eve as figurative people. So that the story of Adam and Eve in the garden is sort of like an allegory of the sinfulness of all human beings. right? You sort, of, you sort of hear this interpretation sometimes. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. right? It's like every day, Adam is just every man. Eve is every woman. And that's just sort of a parable of human sinfulness. Or that Adam and Eve is a personification of the whole human race. The whole human race collectively fell through repeated rebellion and disobedience and so forth. And then the story is personified as a single pair um, to make the story simple, right? So here's my response to that. Um, I believe Adam and Eve are real historical people because the gospel depends on Adam being a real person. Because the gospel isn't just that all of humanity happens to, you know, all of us individually are sinful. The gospel tells us something more specific than that. It tells us that we are under condemnation because of what Adam did, right? Not, because, not simply because of our own sin and guilt, although that's true as well, but um, originally because of Adam's representational disobedience, we have all fallen. His sins are, are imputed to us because of one man's sin. And the parallel is Christ. Why are we redeemed? Why are we accepted before God as holy and righteous? Not because all of us individually perform acts of righteousness and live a holy life, but because our new representative head, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, stands in our place as our federal head, and because of his righteousness, all of us, his righteousness is imputed to us, credited to us, and therefore we're all saved. So if Adam, if, if there's no real Adam, then how can... how? Then, then how does that explain how we're all fallen? And then how does that therefore um, give structure to our salvation, which is there's one real Jesus Christ, 
in whom his righteousness is credited to us. So this is the argument, for example, you see in uh, Corinthians and Romans. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what Paul writes. For as by a man came death, by a man also... uh, (laughs) Let me read it again. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Listen to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see the parallel, right? Or what about Romans 5? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Does that make sense? So the gospel depends on a real, actual, historical man, Adam. His disobedience, his singular act of rebellion plunged all of humanity into sin and death. And the parallel, therefore, is our salvation in Christ. If there is no, if Adam and Eve is an allegory, then, then, then the gospel falls apart. Secondly, the New Testament speaks of Adam as a real person. Um, so Luke 3, Adam is included in a genealogy, right? Um, it doesn't make sense. He's a, he's a literary, I mean, a figurative figure. First Timothy chapter 2, we looked at this several weeks ago. In verse 13, Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's talking about uh, the specific historical event, um, talking about gender roles in the church. Um, the, the final question then is, how can a historical Adam be reconciled with modern genetics? Right, so now here we're in a contradiction. Um, so here's one possible solution. One possible solution is that God designated Adam and Eve out of an already existing human population. So, you know, maybe there was a, a, a population of human beings, 100,000, um, the original population, and God pulled out two of them, put them in the garden so they can go through this drama, um, and then all of us are under the headship of Adam. That's possible. Um, but here's my real answer. Why do we even have to resolve the tension? There are many, many unanswered questions in Genesis. If we're going to all go nitpicking for problems, it'll never end. Where did Cain get his wife? <laughs> How do we account for the extreme longevity in Genesis? Right? Methuselah lived 969 years. Modern science can't account for that. Where is the evidence of a worldwide flood? There is no evidence. Um, did the Tower of Babel really explain the origin of languages? If you've ever studied linguistics, the answer is it doesn't, right? So my, my feeling is this. The Genesis records real events, but in a compressed, highly stylized fashion. So we should read Genesis as a real story, but not as journalistic science. And there will always, therefore, be unresolved tensions between science and Genesis, but that's okay. Um, we sort of leave it as unresolved and you read Genesis theologically, not scientifically, and you don't try to harmonize. You just say, I don't know. I don't know how we reconcile modern genetics with the historical Adam. I don't know, but I believe in a historical Adam. I don't know how there could be you know, uh, the Tower of Babel, but I believe it happened. And the story is not to tell us the origin of languages, but actually the story is to tell us uh, the story of humanity and, and then the beautiful ending in Acts 2 and so forth. Mel, do you have a question? Um, so are you saying out of the creation story, the only thing that we really have to take literally and believe is Adam and Eve and everything else can be some form of any of those three ideas? Genesis 1 tells us a lot of concrete things. The Bible falls apart without them, right? The gospel falls apart without Adam and Eve, I agree. Um, it tells us that God created all things. The universe is not pre-existent. For, it's not an eternal thing. It's contingent and dependent on God. Um, it tells us that creation is good. God said it was good. So everything is good. What makes things evil is not the thing itself. It's how we abuse it, right? Look, my question here is, is out of the creation story, yeah. we don't have to be hard line. Oh, six days or, or you know, you got the day age and all that. Yeah. All that really matters is that we believe Adam and Eve existed. That's, that's one of the things. we have to defend, right? Everything else can be your interpretation. I wouldn't even use the word defend, right? So if a, if a geneticist says, if a geneticist says, defend Adam and Eve, I would just say, no. <laughs> um, you do your thing, geneticist, right? And I'm going to 
hold to a real historical Adam and Eve, but I, I don't have a scientific explanation for you, and I'm not going to even try. I, so I, I think that even that effort to try to reconcile it is unhelpful, and ultimately it makes Christians look foolish. So Genesis 1 tells us real things, real events, but it tells it to us in a kind of poetic, stylized fashion. And so you're not gonna you're not gonna um, draw out you're not gonna read it like a scientific textbook. You're gonna read it like a theological poem. I think my point is this: yeah. is, is we as church members we can sit around all day and, and be debating and discussing one, two, and three. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's really no proof that anybody's uh, right or wrong. But if you say Adam and Eve just some theological construct, yeah. then you're no longer a Christian? No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> um, I would say you're right. You could be a believer and believe in any one of these three views. You can believe in a fourth or fifth view. There are other views as well. That's fine, right? Because I don't think it's super, super clear. Um, on the issue of Adam and Eve, um, I have to think about it a bit longer. But yeah, you're bordering on the gospel. On the because found if you don't it. believe in Adam and Eve, well, then the geology is all a farce, and the fact that Jesus came from that line is all a farce, right? Yeah, then you're losing Romans 5 in the gospel. Yeah. Without Adam and Eve, is, I mean, the whole thing is Yeah. So that's the only really simple thing there, right? Huh? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of, so some theologians respond by saying, well, Paul knows it's a literary story, and he's using these literary figures. To, to, yeah, but so I think it's a little bit of a tortured argument right. because Jesus is a real historical person, but Adam is a literary figurative person, and he's drawing this parallel. So I think uh, most theologians agree Paul truly believed in a historical Adam. They're just saying that he was mistaken. So I, I'm just saying. Yeah, I guess that's another way for me to say. Let's just let's just hold off judgments. Is there any yeah. black and white creation story? <laughs> yes. Any black and white or oh, tons, tons. God created the world. It's not it's not preexistent. God created the world good. Um, God created it for our enjoyment. We're, we're to rule and to have dominion. Um, God created um, Adam and Eve, um, humanity, as His vice regents in His image. Um, God created us to enter into this new age to come. There's a lot of great things to to say. Yeah. Any any other questions? So I settled it. <laughs> it is done. It no is finished. No more discussion. We're all in agreement. No controversy. Good. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are grappling with how to understand Genesis 1. And uh, it's difficult. Um, and we certainly don't have the pretension to say we have all the answers. But we know that your word is for our benefit, for our nourishment and instruction. So help us to have this humble approach and to be lifelong students, to keep searching the scriptures, keep reading, keep thinking, keep dialoguing, and seeking your understanding. Please bless us. Please teach us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody.